When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm Joel Anich, and this is Skyline's The City Metric Podcast. I've kind of picked up a tendency on this podcast, I think, where I tend to get in guests who, to a large extent, agree with me about things. They tend to be sort of in favour of devolution. They tend to be in favour of local transport. They tend to think houses are too expensive. They also are probably more likely to vote for left-leaning parties. Uh, And, you know, this is... I've had some lovely guests, but this I think this is kind of a limiting factor. And sometimes it's more fun just to kind of get in someone who you know for a fact you don't agree with and have a bit of a Barney. So that's what I'm going to do today. I will ask my my victim to introduce himself. I am Henry Hill. I'm the assistant editor of Conservative Home. I'm one of the more sort of active unionist journalists and tweeters and so on and so forth. And while I do actually agree with John about house prices and I'm perfectly fine with local transport, I deeply disagree with him on devolution. Okay. No, we're very pro-devolution around here. We generally think there's too much power in Westminster and not Uh enough elsewhere. Sure. So... Set out your stool. Like, for, like I'll, I'll start picking you apart later. But first of all, just, just tell me, what, what's, what's your issue? What is your problem? Okay, so first of all, I think I should specify what I mean by devolution. I'm not against passing power to local government. I'm not against city mayors. Uh, I think actually those can be very useful and beneficial. When I, when I say devolution, I specifically mean the Blair project of devolution to the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly, and as a slightly separate but related point to the Northern Ireland Assembly as well. We'll put Northern Ireland to one side for a moment, I think. But like, to what's, come on, spell out what's, what's your difficulty with the kind of the other two Celtic nations having their own representative so, governments? I think what you need to do is you need to go back to how these two legislatures were justified in the 1990s when we were debating setting them up in the first place. Uh, the idea was that they would improve the government of Scotland and Wales that they would help those regions uh, or countries or nations, however you want to define them, to sort of have uh, more responsive local politics, that they would scotch the nationalists, no pun intended, and kind of see off the threat of nationalism, and that they would stabilise the UK constitution and they would create a new settlement which would help the United Kingdom stay together. And I think that really, if you, were, if you took today's status quo and you could somehow take it back to the 1990s and show it to the MPs debating the establishment of the Scottish Parliament. I don't think it's really fulfilled any of those criteria. Obviously, nationalism hasn't gone away. It has not, in any sense, stabilised the British Constitution. It's really unleashed kind of two decades of continual pressure for, you know, more powers and 
uh, there's been no kind of guiding guiding scheme as to how that's eventually going to shake out. It's just been a series of kind of uncoordinated concessions. But also, it's if you look at how it's played out in Scotland and Wales, because obviously I'm, so those first two points are kind of a very kind of arch-Westminster constitutionalist perspective, it hasn't actually been terribly good for the government of either of those two countries. For starters, it's often been used, for example, in Wales, and to a lesser extent in Scotland, it's been used to kind of embed a really strong local consensus which has not actually been which has come at the expense of kind of the debate you need for good policy making so most famously Labour after the establishment of the Welsh Assembly in 1998 or 1999 uh, rolled back an awful lot of the Conservative government's education reforms and then entirely opted out of the Blair era education reforms and as a result you can see you've got a comparison between English and uh, Welsh educational outcomes and educational outcomes in Wales fell off a cliff and I think that you really have created two very insular and quite homogenous political cultures which I don't think has favoured either Scotland or Wales and finally it has created a tendency by politicians in Cardiff and Edinburgh to replicate the sort of attitudes that were so criticised in Westminster you know the centralising tendency is very very strong Uh, in Scotland you've got the Scottish government continually trying to squeeze the autonomy of local government Uh, areas like Orkney and Shetland for example are continue they were polled during Scottish independence, and they said they like to opt out and still be ruled by London. And they, Which know, was crazy, wasn't it? Like the most far-flung bit of Scotland again, was, was one of the most was, pro-unionist. But was it crazy? Because if you think about it, if you cherish your independence, sort of not as, a, as a nation, but as, a, as, a, as an area or a region, is, is it better to be ruled by London, uh, which is a long way away and will therefore have to give you quite a lot of autonomy, or by Edinburgh, which is much closer and is governed by a, a Scottish Nationalist Party with really strong... Um, centralising instincts. And in Wales, this has had a slightly different effect, and this was only put to me recently, which is that because everything now has to be done through the prism of Wales, it actually means that um, Welsh local government and decision-making is kind of boxed out of more natural shapes. So, for example, North Wales, its natural hinterland in terms of transport connections, in terms of proximity, is to Merseyside and Liverpool and that kind of area. But you can't anymore, after 1998, really have solutions that fit into a kind of North Wales, Merseyside arc. They have to be north-south and run from Cardiff. And so once again, it's good for Cardiff and it's good for politicians in Cardiff, but it's not necessarily been the boon for areas like North Wales and Northern Scotland that it might initially have appeared in 1998. I think it's also worth saying that I think I'm right in saying that to get a train from North Wales to South Wales... You mostly have to go via England. Like, a lot of the trains from the northern part of Wales to Cardiff go via Birmingham, which because the, the middle of Wales is mountains, right? Yeah, right. And, so this is the, and so this is the point. You have logical and kind of natural and organic um, regional arrangements which don't map nicely onto the kind of national boundaries that you get, especially in Wales and sometimes in Scotland. And so, therefore, really what you've got with the idea that all powers have to be devolved to to Edinburgh or Cardiff, and there's not really much talk about other arrangements where Westminster devolves directly down to, to sort of local areas, it, it cre- it's sort of trying to force an awful lot of different areas into one Wales or Scotland-shaped box, and that doesn't always fit. So there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack here, but let's, let's start with the... Just because I know people are going to be wondering this, where are you, where are you personally from? My family grew up in Hertfordshire. My mother is uh, from County Roscommon in the Republic of Ireland, and she's an Irish national. Sure, but you are, you're not Welsh or Scottish, or you're, no. if anything, you are English. Sure. I, that, I am British, actually. Okay. Sure. How does that kind of, I mean, this, but this kind of gets to the heart of the problem, doesn't it? It's like, it's very, even if, 
you can make some of those arguments and like you know I do, as 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 someone who like tends to vote for left wing parties mm. it is uncomfortable to me that the ongoing Labour administration in Wales has clearly delivered worse educational outcomes. But as someone who used to be an education journalist, I've seen the statistics. That is definitely true. Like how? So, so I'm not, I'm not nuts about that. But nonetheless, it's not that this stuff isn't true. It's like, but you run straight into this question of I of identity, right? And it's very difficult for someone from outside those nations to turn around and say, yes, but your 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 autonomy hasn't worked. It's it's actually not. I mean, it, it, it seems to feel that way, but it's actually, for, you know, from my perspective, it isn't. And I think that really more people should be doing it because the problem that you have is that um, the political classes in Scotland and Wales, um, the Edinburgh and Cardiff, they all have a direct vested interest in devolution. You know, frankly, let's face it, devolution creates jobs. It doesn't just create jobs as, legis- as legislators. It creates jobs as researchers. It creates jobs in think tanks. It creates jobs in the third sector, and uh, even in the media, you know, it's more glamorous to be the, the the assembly correspondent of the Western Mail than it is to sort of be the sort of reporting from Westminster. So it creates an, the entire political class over there has a, has a direct vested interest in devolution continuing, and indeed in it, it expanding and getting more powers, which means that it's actually very difficult to fight, to to get devo-sceptic voices a fair hearing. Now, if you look at the polling, for example, one in five Scots, roughly, would like to disestablish the Scottish Parliament. Not a single MSP or MP represents their views. There's no regular journalism that represents their position. You know, I would, I would love it, you know, if, um, obviously, probably not financially, but I would love it if there were more people, you know, arguing this position in Scotland and Wales. It, you know, obviously being the, Eng- the Scotland and Wales correspondent for Conservative Home and being English, you, you, you sometimes, you are, you are sometimes aware of this. But the fact of the matter is that the arguments stand up whether or not you're Scottish and Welsh when you're making them. And I think that very often what you actually get is you you get devolved politicians trying to hide behind the flag to avoid scrutiny of these issues. So for, they'll, they'll, they'll say that if you criticise the devolution settlement or even if you criticise you know, the way that devolution has played out, especially on education, for example, um, they will kind of they will, they will say it's an insult to the nation. The Welsh, Welsh Labour are particularly bad for this. So stop talking down Scotland. Yeah, precisely. Kind of, so yeah. the Welsh, the Welsh Labour administration, when Michael Gove published an article in the Western Mail comparing English and Welsh educational outcomes, the, the Welsh government's education spokesman accused him of unconquerable colonial attitudes to Wales. And all he was saying was that after about 10 years of devolution, the Welsh government had screwed up schools or 15 years of devolution. So I think actually you do, if you're English or if you want to call me English, you do actually need to step up and make these arguments because the local political classes in in Edinburgh and Cardiff do not represent devo-sceptic opinion in those countries. Rule from Westminster has not been great for a lot of the country i mean this is why we're quite in favor of uh, i say we as if i've got like an army of supporters this is why <laughs> we are city metric which is really yes. really just me uh, this is this is why i've come to the conclusion that actually taking power out of westminster uh-huh. handing it to more local areas sure. is a good thing because the further you get from london to a large extent the worse westminster rule has gone there's less investment in kind of key infrastructure yeah. what 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 the relationships are i don't know but often you can also you do see like worse health outcomes worse, mm-hmm. worse inequality worse educational mm-hmm. outcomes because it's i mean at the most basic level it's kind of quite easy for politicians and civil servants in the southeast of england to see the point of something like crossrail whereas they can't see the point of something like i don't know a, a, a tram system in leeds or whatever 
So, so all my instincts are like pushing power closer to people, given the ridiculously over-centralized nature of the British Constitution, is probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. So for all the perfectly valid criticisms you just made, I do not see how closing the Welsh Assembly tomorrow would ipso facto result in better outcomes for Wales. What evidence is there of that beyond this sort of one thing around school standards? I mean, there's also health. I mean... I think that you're in a pretty sad position when the Conservative government of 2015 can literally... I think you're in a pretty bad position when the Conservative government in 2015 can campaign against the NHS on the basis of the Welsh government's record. It's not just education. So if you wanted to answer your question literally, by by implementing the reforms that both this Conservative government and, to its credit, the new Labour government have been putting in in England over the last 20 years, um, the evidence suggests that that would improve Welsh um, education and, and health outcomes. But I think... Your your point sort of missed my clarification at the beginning, which is that I'm against devolution in the terms of the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament. I'm not against devolution to cities and regions and counties and so on and so forth. In fact, I think that one of Margaret Thatcher's biggest mistakes, and I know that there were sort of very acute political pressures on her at the time, but I think that one of her biggest mistakes was that she could, during the 1980s, have kind of got ahead of devolution by granting Edinburgh and Glasgow and the northeast of Scotland and the Highlands their own deals and therefore creating powers that would have had to be snatched back to Edinburgh for a devolution settlement to work, and that would have helped to balance things out. Absolutely, we need more, we need more devolution. But as I said, we need devolution which fits into a more organic local mould. Glasgow and its hinterland, yes, natural devolutionary unit. Uh, Edinburgh, much the same. Scottish borders, probably the same. Northeast of Scotland, the same. North Wales and Merseyside, definitely South Wales and sort of Bristol, Mm. the same. That's all great. But the fact of the matter is that the devolution settlement we have actually stands in the way of this sort of arrangement in both Wales and Scotland. If you look at the in in Wales at the moment, the the Welsh Assembly is currently having a massive showdown with the local government association because it's proposing to slash the number of Welsh, Welsh councils. These, as I said earlier, the Scottish government under the SNP has been clamp, has been squeezing Scottish government, local government autonomy by holding down council taxes and then sort of making it up with central government grants, which are conditional. So if you believe in devolution and, and you believe in devolution to communities and to cities and to regions, then you have plenty of reasons to be sceptical of the devolution arrangements for Wales and Scotland. But one of the problems that city-based, city-region-based deals mm-hmm. run into again and again and again mm-hmm. is where the kind of economic geography does not match the geography of identity. Mm-hmm. So if you look at somewhere like Yorkshire, yeah. where like there you can you can make a case for you could make a case for like having a Leeds city region and Sheffield city region and maybe a sort of like East Yorkshire is effectively the whole city region and then you've kind of got this sort of the North Yorkshire bit mm-hmm. which is the rural bit that kind of makes sense yeah. or I can envision a thing where you kind of you, you merge those first three until you have sort of urban Yorkshire yeah. and rural Yorkshire mm-hmm. but we're not getting either of those things mm-hmm. what we what seems it's not necessarily going to happen, but what like all the pressures push us towards is a Yorkshire-wide deal, even though that will like cut out half of the hinterland of Sheffield and places where people will be commuting to Sheffield, but will include loads of rural bits that people are never going to commute to Leeds or Sheffield. They're miles from anywhere, mm-hmm. and like because like it makes no sense to me. But if you ever try talking about like you know devolution to the Leeds city region on the internet you will get people yelling about how you can't divide Yorkshire uh-huh. so like so I've, I've reluctantly come to the conclusion that 
to get kind of buy-in for these units of government, you can't totally ignore the identities that people have in their own mind as to how what what the place they live in is. And surely a nation is kind of the, the biggest expression of those identities. Well, you can't, you can't, you definitely can't ignore it. But then again, I think it's also important to realise that you can't let sort of, especially I think in Yorkshire, probably a sort of very noisy minority of patriotic Yorkshire nationalists impose a settlement that doesn't make sense. Now, for example, let's look at the, the way the Welsh Assembly was, was founded, right? The Welsh Assembly was founded on a 50.1%, 49.9% margin. If you, I cannot off the top of my head remember the, the, where the balance of all the, of all the votes was, but I think again, North Wales, I think, voted against. And South Wales voted for. So I think so I'd be su- I'm surprised by that because I would have thought North Wales is, is there's more Welsh speakers in North Wales. Well, it's no, less, there's, there's bits less of Anglo. Yes, but, well, there, well, North Wales has Welsh speaking, and I'm, I might be wrong. I have I literally just haven't looked up these statistics in a while. But North Wales has done badly after devolution. But yes, there are Welsh speaking areas of North Wales, but they tend to be quite sparsely populated. And South Wales has Cardiff and Cardiff's sort of metropolitan area, and that's area very strongly benefits stood, stood to benefit from devolution in the first place. Mm. So I think that pre- created a kind of powerful counterweight. But again, I think you have to look at rhetoric versus reality. So for example, there's all this talk about how the Scottish Parliament was the, was the absolute uh, will of the, of the Scottish people and, and it would be an outrage if anything were to happen to it. But at every single election since the establishment of the Scottish Parliament, Westminster turnout has been substantially higher than turnout for Scottish Parliament elections. In Wales... It's a 20-point difference. So two in ten, or one in five of every Welsh voter turns out to vote for Westminster and doesn't turn out to vote for the Assembly, despite the fact that the Assembly has been growing ever more powerful over the last 20 years. So I think it's, you know, Westminster has a function in saying no. And I think it's important, and it's not done this for the last 20 years. It really has just been making concession after concession after concession. But you do need a central body which can look at the overall integrity of the United Kingdom and the Union and say no to arrangements which might be locally popular, but which don't work. And I think that's entirely legitimate. And it's a function which it hasn't been fulfilling. And I think that would you could argue that that applies to a Yorkshire Assembly. And I think that it definitely would have applied to a Scottish Parliament and, and frankly, a Welsh Assembly. I think that it is perfectly legitimate to say that, you know, you have the right to independence if you want it and you vote for it. But you do not have the right to unilaterally set the terms on which you have the union. We think that this particular arrangement would be bad for the United Kingdom, and therefore the United Kingdom is not available on those terms. And I think that actually Westminster has to take its responsibilities seriously about these devolution arrangements and make sure not only that they're locally popular, but that they work and that they won't create further constitutional problems down the line. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But one of the arguments made in favour of these devolution settlements in the first place was that something of this sort was, was inevitable. Like, there was so much pressure, like, there was a lot of dissatisfaction in in both Scotland and Wales, about, uh, frankly, about the, the, the settlement they received under the Thatcher government. And that kind of, like, created the sort of a, a surge of, of national national nationalism that had not necessarily been there before. And the new Labour politicians who kind of held those referendums would have just said, well, we're just responding to... Could could they really have just said... Yeah, well, I, mean, I mean, in 1990... In I think that... No, in 1998, it would have been very difficult, although it would have been right um, to resist... You know, Tony Blair had a majority of, what, 130-something? 160, he, Yeah, yeah, precisely. He was the risen messiah, and he could, if he wanted to, have faced down Scottish and Welsh nationalism. The idea that Labour were just responding to pressure is um, to rewrite history quite substantially. What... Labour did in Wales and Scotland is that they started levelling, they started basically trying to exploit the national, nationalism to do the Tories in. And if you talk to people like Tom Harris and even Ian Smart, who's a Labour blogger who was previously very, very pro-devolution, um, they will concede that that's what they did. They said that the Tory government had not won a majority of seats in Scotland and therefore it was illegitimate for it to be governing Scotland. And they introduced that idea into the body politic. And they did that for sort of 15 years, and it was very successful. It murdered the Tories in Scotland. It actually wiped the Tories out in Wales as well, and it worked. And then they set up the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly, and they sort of thought, that's that. You know, we've got these, we've been able to put everyone we haven't managed to elect to Westminster, we'll have a job in these parliaments, and it's great, and we've sorted everything. But the problem is that once you start doing that, nationalists will always outflank you. Because if you're a party like Labour, which... I don't agree with it, but does have a philosophical tradition, you know, social democratic philosophical tradition nationalists can always afford to be more opportunists. And so the nationalists started playing the same game. And they said, you know, Scottish Labour is actually, we're more Scottish than, than Labour. Labour is the party of London. Labour is the party of the United Kingdom. And therefore you saw in 2015, when the Labour Party managed to almost get wiped out in Scotland, basically exactly the same tactic being levelled against it as they had used to wipe out the Tories 20 years previously. And so I think that we have to bear in mind that, yes, there was an awful lot of political pressure to establish these uh, institutions at, in 1998. But that pressure was created because the Labour Party had decided to basically strike a Faustian pact with nationalist sentiment. And the Welsh Labour Party has not learned its lesson and continues doing that to this day. And at some point, its reckoning will come because it can never be more Welsh than Plaid Cymru. We, I mean, you say this, but like, if there is one ongoing theme with British elections for the last forty years or more, mm-hmm. it's that everyone thinks that Plaid Cymru's moment is about to come, and it never ever does. No, <laughs> for, for whatever no, reason, that's true. Like Leanne Wood seemed to be quite popular, but no, nothing, she took not she took thing. that seat. She took. Yeah, but they still got they got what three or Blown four up, MPs. When? It's tiny. Oh no, but, oh no, but in yeah. terms of MPs, uh, yes. But I think you have to remember, as I said earlier, um, in Wales. The, the electorates for the Assembly versus Parliament are really quite different electorates. Mm. The extra 20% of voters who turn out for Westminster elections are 
let's face it, they're, de they're, they're, they're devo-skeptics. If you're tuning out of the Welsh Assembly but rocking up to vote for Westminster, you are probably sceptical about the devolution arrangements. And so it's, no, it's not surprising that when we look at Welsh Assembly elections, which are fought with 50% of the electorate, the Tories are bumping along sort of in third, right? Sometimes they overtake Plyde for an election, then they'll slip back. But when you look at Westminster results, where these extra 20% of voters have all turned out, the Tories do substantially better, and they are consistently and quite comfortably Wales' second party. So I think that, yeah, where, where, Plaid Cymru's prospects in Westminster are not great. He says, you know, obviously, in the age of uncertainty. Um, so now, obviously, they're going to sweep everything. But I think they could do much better in the Welsh Assembly. And you really saw, there are some great blogs by Labour activists in Wales after the 2015 election, hammering Carwin Jones for fixating on trying to outnat the, the, the Plaid at the expense of ignoring, if you like, Anglos and Tory voters, and that's why the Tories did so well in 2015. We put Northern Ireland to one side <laughs> because it's because it's like nobody wants to go there. But we probably should. I at love least Northern Ireland. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't mean that literally. I had a very. I, had a, but I, I was there for for work two days for two days like ten years ago, uh -huh. and this is in the middle of a sort of Celtic tour I was doing for a piece I was working on. Sure. And I got into a, a cab in the centre of Belfast and said. Uh, Holyrood, please. Oh shit, wrong country. <laughs> and the cab, the cab driver was delighted by that. So that that made me sort of warm to them. The fact that he found that funny rather than you yeah. know massively offensive. But yes, yeah, so Northern Ireland is is a different situation uh -huh. because it's because it's a more contested. Yes. Uh, matter whether it's even part of the UK, psychologically speaking. Mm -hmm. Legally, of course, it is. But you know what yeah. I mean. Yes, yes, yes. So, like, I mean, would you have made the same arguments about resisting some kind of devolution settlement there? Again, it's not about the fact that it has a devolution settlement. It's about the devolution settlement that it has. I have been covering Northern Ireland for Conservative Home since 2013, when I was actually studying in Dublin. And in that time, Stormont is on the brink of collapse, or has collapsed, for most of it. You know, there's the, old, there's the very well-established argument that the Stormont arrangements um, effectively murdered the political centre in Northern Ireland. They led to the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP being squeezed out by Sinn Féin and the DUP. But I think, more to the point, there's this idea that there had to be a province-wide government, and it had to have power sharing, and it had to have huge numbers of powers... And what's happened with the recent crises is that it's shown that actually that really just might not have been the most suitable arrangement. First, for political reasons, because a system that requires the DUP and Sinn Féin to work together isn't great in the first place. But secondly, in terms of capacity issues. So have you been following the, this heat incentive scandal they've got in Northern Ireland? Uh, very vaguely. Yeah, vaguely. Give, give us the quick. Okay, so the basically there was, um, there was a, an environmental policy to subsidise renewable heating. When the legislation that was originally Westminster legislation was copied over to Northern Ireland, they changed it and they basically removed all the cost controls. And so they ended up subsidising farmers to heat empty sheds and all sorts of nonsense, and it cost the, ta uh, the taxpayer millions and millions of pounds. Now, one of the things that's come out of the inquiry into how this happened is the fact that it's been seriously suggested by senior members of the Northern Irish Civil Service that the Northern Irish Civil Service does not have the capacity to handle some of the policy issues which have been passed to the Assembly during the devolution settlement. Because if you think about it, London and Westminster, you're drawing on a pool of tens of thousands of civil servants recruited from across either England or mainland Britain, depending on your policy area. Whereas in Northern Ireland, you're drawing from a very small pool, you're working on a very, you're, you're, you're almost inevitably working with a very small team, and yet you're having to handle the same policy issues. And so it's seriously being suggested, not by partisan unionists like me, but by the civil servants themselves, that the Assembly isn't equipped to deal with the scope of powers that it's been given. 
So I think actually, you know, there are, there's, there are more sensible devolution arrangements to have for Northern Ireland. And again, they're more local. You know, you've got, it doesn't have to be the counties, it could be the local authority areas, but you can find areas where there's a nationalist majority and you can give them devolution and they won't feel the need to grandstand against the unionists all the time. And then you can take, you know, the east of the country and the northeast of the country and you could give them a devolution deal. That area is more cohesive. They, they wouldn't need to grandstand against the nationalists all the time and they could have local powers, you know, and then you could frankly have a bit more of the big stuff set by London because welfare policies and so on, there's no benefit to having them set in Belfast. Some, something I didn't appreciate about Northern Ireland until um, a guy called Patch Thompson wrote his piece about infrastructure in, in Northern Ireland is that there is a massive east-west divide. Huge. Because the eastern side of the country where Belfast is, is the traditionally more unionist bit, so that actually has fairly good infrastructure, but the further west you had, the worse it gets because those have traditionally been more republican sympathizing mm-hmm. so yeah. they just haven't had investment over yes. decades yeah. which but i mean this is not i mean this isn't not a great advert for for westminster power is it no 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 oh i just dis- i dispute mm. that entirely i think if you look dispute at the, it quickly we if you look at if you look at the history of devolution of northern ireland northern ireland has had devolution for most of its time you know it had the northern ireland part the parliament of northern ireland from 1922 to 1970 1971 and then it's had devolution ever since so you know th- yeah there was a period of direct rule but direct rule has not been okay, a, a okay. hugely long period so yeah absolutely Derry or londonderry as i must call it for my own political sympathies london uh, londonderry and western northern ireland would profit from having their own arrangements and then you know if you like the unionist eastern portion of the country would also probably be better governed if it had its own deal but where does this stop because right now we are in the middle of uh, i mean let's let's be honest it's a bit of a political crisis at the moment uh-huh. whatever brexit arrangement we get all, all the sort of predictions for where it might go suggest that we are going to be poorer as a result mm-hmm. which you could say you know this is this is the worst this is the worst policy we could take because, you know, cl- clearly from a policy perspective, we should be staying in and, you know, and therefore stay relatively to, rich. No, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying like there is, there, there are parallels here where you can say there is a conflict between, you know, good policy mm-hmm. and identity politics. Uh-huh. And, you know, we've got we, 52% voted for Brexit. We're going with the identity politics. Mm-hmm. But nobody would question, like, even... It's a very, very tiny pool of ultra-Remainers. Like, I'm pretty bloody Remain. Uh-huh. And I do not fundamentally question the right of the British people to vote their way out of Europe. I think it was a bad idea. I will okay. campaign for another referendum, etc. Okay. But I do not question the legitimacy of that vote, if you okay. see the slight difference. Yes. There. I'm not like an AC Grayling type going, oh, it was just nonsense. It was only a 37%. Most people didn't... That's, that's nonsense. Oh, you know, it's like... It's, it's, you know, it was a legitimate vote. Uh I think it'll be a catastrophe, but I can't really argue with the legitimacy of it. Okay. So, you know, there is, we often run into this conflict between what is, what people want because of how they perceive their identity and good geographies policy making. If the European Union turned around right now and said, well, you can't leave because actually we think there's going to be better policies for you if you stay in. You probably wouldn't be happy with that, would you? No. And you're not you're not like a lever. You are you are you're a relever, aren't you? Did I got that right? What's a relever? Someone who voted remain but thought, well now we need to get on with it. Oh no, I... no, sorry. Are you, uh, are you I, full on leave? I was I was Conservative Homes um token remainer for ah. about two and a half years and then I became a lever during the referendum campaign. Oh wow. Um, so it's your fault. I know it was it was my fault, but in fairness, uh, the European Union banned my cigarettes. So <laughs> um 
you know, frankly, bit more, bit more give and take, okay. and maybe. But I think your parallel, your parallel doesn't hold, and it doesn't hold for for two reasons. First okay. of all, there is a fundamental qualitative difference between being uh, the decision of a sovereign country uh, of a sovereign country, and I'm not talking about the whole European Union sovereignty argument. But the United Kingdom is a sovereign entity, whereas Scotland and Wales are not. So the United Kingdom does fundamentally, in international law, have the right to decide whether or not a vote taken by a sub-state entity in the United Kingdom is legitimate or not, in a way that the European Union does not. They are qualitatively different things. But the other difference, and I think the bigger and more important difference for the purposes of this discussion, is the fact that the, the EU referendum was in or out. And again, I've, Scotland and Wales, absolutely, I think, should be able to vote in or out of the United Kingdom. But it wasn't a vote on Britain unilaterally setting a new set of terms. I think that you can argue that a country has the right, or a region, or a province, or whatever you want to call them, has the right to decide on membership of a larger entity, but does not have the right to unilaterally impose the terms of its membership of a larger entity. So it is entirely legitimate for you know the United Kingdom to say that the union is not available on certain terms. And if I had my way in 1998, those terms would have been a Scottish Parliament. As of now, those terms are kind of, you know, full federalism and a sovereign Hollywood and all of that stuff. So this is why I didn't think you could have Devo Max on the ballot paper during the Scottish referendum. You cannot have a unilateral declaration of devolution. Such settlements always have to be negotiated. And the sovereign authority always has a legitimate adjudicating role. And so I don't think that the European parallel really holds up. Well, we could probably keep arguing about this for quite a long time, and I suspect on the internet we probably <laughs> will. But for now, let's leave it there. Thank you, Henry. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.